0: Welcome back to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader. And I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. I am coming to you with a new interview episode to share with Elle the Aquarius, and we discussed Ceres, the archetype, the asteroid, or the dwarf planet. Ceres is Demeter, and It's hard to look at Demeter without also considering Persephone and Hades. Maybe you're familiar with this myth of the idyllic, close relationship, mother daughter relationship between Ceres, or sorry, Demeter and Persephone, and that Persephone is out playing one day. She sees this Narcissus flower, goes to it, and the ground or hell opens up, and she is taken into the underworld by Hades and there's different interpretations of this myth in terms of whether she was abducted or it was some kind of personal destiny um, that was her true nature to become queen of the underworld but either way, however I've encountered this myth what I find about Demeter is often her um, you know, her going insane her scouring, searching the earth for her daughter and eventually... um, arriving at a deal where she gets Persephone half of the year. And here we get the seasons. Um, We go from perpetual spring and summertime to the advent of winter and autumn. And we have the experience of grief and renewal expressed in nature itself. And this particular archetype has been opening up its mysteries to me um, over the last few years. You may have noticed that i've been much slower on the podcast than when i first started i think for a while i was putting out like two episodes a week Um, but during my saturn return i took a lot of time off and i traveled i really had a lot of fun and i had a lot of deep healing deep healing of grief Um, if you were here for it you may also have Listen to Hungry Ghosts of Paradise if you haven't yet um, or you don't know what I'm talking about. This is an audio novella that I shared to this podcast. I'll share the playlist in the notes where basically I turned 30 and realized I've been grieving this thing for like six years now. I need to like full on write a novel about it. And I did this kind of act of public grieving, public creativity and erotic audiobiographical audio novella. And it was profound as an experience and the feedback that I got from you. But essentially, I ended up um, learning how to recycle all of that energy. And so now I approach Ceres, you know, I've been aware of her archetype. I've been aware of her asteroid and included her in charts for years. But she keeps, um, I think, opening and we will find this with any astrological archetype that our understanding of it grows alongside our lived experience or our embodied awareness of the archetype. And so this conversation with Elle came at a brilliant time. It was the day after Mother's Day, so already a Ceres or Demeter kind of theme. Elle works very intimately with the asteroids, including many of the known and lesser knowns in their practice, and has written an ebook about Ceres that I'll link in the notes. Elle's perspectives on series opened up a lot of new realizations that happened inside of this podcast episode and that I'm still um, integrating, so I really loved recording this conversation with them. A little bit about Elle. Elle is a queer, creative human sharing astrology to uplift and inspire those in their community. They have a down-to-earth approach to the nature of astrology and seek to find creative ways that we can allow it to support us in the day-to-day. I have some announcements forthcoming about um, opportunities to learn with me. Um, I've been teaching an evolutionary astrology intensive for five years, and it is now going to be undergoing a major upleveling. Um, that is only appropriate in the sense that, as I've been working with astrology for all of these years, um, what I've come to realize is that it's really part of a lifestyle. It's a literacy So though I do teach how to read charts, um, how to understand your own chart from the perspective of your soul's ongoing evolution, there's so many different applications in our lives and in our embodiment that astrology can bring us to. And so as a teacher, um, I found that in teaching the intensive and then the advanced program Meteorite that we really expanded the territory of what was possible to explore through astrology or explore with astrology in an interdisciplinary way and that my one of my favorite things as a teacher is to support people in becoming astrologically literate right to like really know the language and then from that place of literacy you get to be really creative or you get to have important psychological spiritual emotional revelations or revelations so i will be announcing this the details soon um, you can tune into the podcast for that or you can also sign up for my mailing list and i'm leaving the link in the notes i have some spaces for astrology readings in may and then i also have a super exciting adventure coming up for you this june summer solstice in crete greece carla palomino and i are hosting a dionysian mythopoetic ritual experience where you will be immersed into a living storybook of these myths and of revelry and peak experience. Carla is an embodiment guide, and I've been journeying with her for years and have had deep transformations. She supports people in connecting to the body in ways that are probably beyond what one can even imagine. She really brings the um, that kind of like psychedelic experience where we connect to that energy just inside of our own bodies. It's essentially like trance magic and she's one of my best friends. We've been trading codes of astrology and embodiment for years now and we're creating this amazing experience together. This ritual immersion is for people who are ready to open to greater expansion and ecstasy in their bodies to awaken to the Dionysian forces within that shake loose, the crusted layers that we've built over time that suppress our fully animated aliveness, to make way for a rippling current of life force and aliveness that is an echo of our original yes to life and then some. We are here to stir a collective dream of revelry and celebration that will reverberate into our future, We are opening doors of perception and sensation in service of living a bigger life. We are calling in peak experience as something that we innately know how to generate from within. We are remembering how to ride that emerging somatic wave of life that wants to move through us. We are inviting you into a sacred archetypal realm to awaken the party within. Join us in Crete, Greece for ecstasies, june 21st to 25th follow the link in the notes to learn more about ecstasies and apply and you can also send me an email sabrina at monarchastrology.com with your interest and i'll send you the application and now i'll leave you to this wonderful conversation that i had with l the aquarius (music) Hey everyone, I'm here with Elle the Aquarius. Really excited to have you here. I feel like this has been a long time coming. I've been enjoying your posts and perspectives for a while. Um, how are you doing? How are you emerging post eclipse season?
1: I feel so good, honestly. Like it's been it's been intense, but um, I'm a Scorpio Moon native, so I'm used to the intensity and kind of thrive in it. So yeah, feeling feeling freshly rebirthed right now and kind of enjoying it a lot I love that so it was
0: an eclipse lunar return Powerful. yeah
1: yeah it was it was a, a couple degrees away from from my moon so okay yeah,
0: like yeah so really cool. really on there in my fourth
1: house as well yeah <laughs> yeah super intense. Yeah.
0: I also feel rebirthed I feel like I was stripped of personal like programs that I saw so clearly and now I like couldn't go back it was like evolution was carrying me and there was no choice and it was very tumultuous in the moment and like a huge amount of energy got freed up
1: yeah it was so interesting because like in those two weeks of you know between eclipses I was kind of looking around like crickets in my ear like where is it you know what what's happening and literally like the night of the eclipse I just had this like earth shattering dream that just like delivered a load of information to me and yeah it was kind of from that moment that I felt everything kind of like metabolize and shift um so it was yeah just really like punchy and um but yeah it helps to shift a lot that's been building up and building up for like years and years now so it it did feel just like a huge sigh of relief
0: wow I love like the deep prophetic dream I feel like that's like being the oracle being the philosopher like being in communion with the cosmos we get those dream downloads
1: Mm -hmm.
0: of course all the time so I know you work a lot with asteroids um I recently maybe in the last year also started going like way into asteroids you know expanding from maybe using four to just like collecting down the rabbit Um, hole (laughs) yeah and so I'm just curious like what drew you in to working with the asteroids and what it's been like
1: Mm, yeah so it was discovering Shariklo on my ascendant um a, a couple years back and yeah, uh, I want to shout out Empress Atlantis and David Leskowitz because um their, their work on Twitter and stuff and just coming across them is what prompted me to even look into the asteroids. And I saw Cherique Lowe just, yeah, smack bang on top of my Ascendant and started looking into what that meant and was just like bowled over by the precision and accuracy um and... Yeah, it was it was a similar journey of like, you know, when you first discover astrology, like that first thing that hooks you in and and then it's just that process of like, wow, I, I literally can't get enough of this. It was very much that with with the asteroids as well. Um, yeah, just like more layers of understanding. And and I like how they add this sort of like flavoring or seasoning to to mm-hmm. like the planets that already exist in the chart. Right. Shuri Clo is the daughter of Chiron. Um, I feel like there might be one or two myths where she's the daughter, but in most of them she's the wife, um, the wife or partner okay. of of
0: Chiron. yeah, how did you connect um with her archetype?
1: It was mostly the um the sort of imagery of being like a, a healing container. Um I've always always been told. By people like that I feel safe to them and they feel safe to open up to me and that I feel very like calming to them um and it also that and the fact that I have Chiron on my moon um and so having like these two centaurs just like placed so prominently in my chart um and the fact that they're linked in myth as well it was just like wow I can't not
0: pay attention to this and as far as yeah like being a safe person to um open up to it kind of has me feeling into ceres whos who is who we're going to talk about today and this like archetype of nourishment and nurturance um, connected to Demeter I've been working with her really like constellating the myth of Hades Persephone and Demeter like all in one whenever I see her asteroid um but I'm curious if we could get an introduction from you about this um asteroid and archetype.
1: Yeah, of course. So Ceres is asteroid number one, literally the asteroid that started all of it. Um and our discovery was accidental. Um a guy called Giuseppe Piazzi was like looking, I think he was just looking to like create a new map of the sky for himself. And he stumbled upon something and was like, what the heck is that? And it was an asteroid. Um or what would then go on to be classed as an asteroid and yeah so just really changed the way that we um view everything in our solar system and yeah she was discovered in 1801 so she's been around in our consciousness for longer than um, longer than Neptune longer than Pluto and yeah like key sort of um associations would be as you said like nourishment nurturing very much a mother archetype um and very linked to like survival and attachment and things
0: like that yeah I was just reading that she's like the largest asteroid in between Mars and Jupiter and essentially like a dwarf planet
1: yeah so yeah she was reclassified as a dwarf planet in I want to say like 2006 or something like that um But yeah, she she makes up something crazy, like twenty five percent of the total mass of the asteroid belt. She's yeah, she's she's big. (laughs) She's got a lot to say.
0: (laughs) Big mother. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, like it's interesting. I didn't know that she was considered a dwarf planet um, until today. Basically, Um, right. Significant. Yeah, Yeah. and then it's
1: so cool that that puts her on like level footing with Pluto. who's obviously, like, the equivalent of Hades and is so interlinked with her myth. Um, yeah, she's... <clears throat> I, I like that part of her story because I think it, like, coincides with her myth in the sense that she was, like, overlooked as, like, not having power um, and and sort of, like, turned around and proved, like, how inherently powerful she is um, and, and is capable of being. So I like that the astronomy like reflects that too.
0: Yeah. I wonder if, you know, her being around the same size as Pluto and like Pluto is such a powerful force, even though it's small and far away and relates to like the unconscious in so many ways and thinking about Ceres relating to attachment and just how much people are influenced by their early attachment patterning and wounding and whatnot. It's like a deep yeah. psychological force as well
1: yeah and it also makes me think of like um the ancestral um sort of inheritance you get from your mother's line, um like you inherit a lot of your mother's trauma, and you know you I don't know how like scientifically true this is, but as far as I understand, um we can technically say like we existed inside of our grandmother's womb, oh, um, that's
0: true, yeah,
1: and so yeah, that's just this like this story of like um yeah your mother and grandmother and your sort of maternal lineage going back like directly impacting how you attach to people in in this lifetime and so okay. yeah that feels super plutonic as well
0: right um how do you see the myth like I guess With Persephone. yeah mm-hmm. yeah um
1: I see see the myth as like the way it would show up in a chart, someone with Ceres plays strongly, I feel would carry this inherent fear that their, their stuff is gonna get taken away from them. Um, and again, to take it back to this theme of like power, you know, Persephone was taken by Hades because of like a deal that Hades and Zeus made. And those are both like members of, um, It's going to get confusing because I'm like switching between Greek and Roman. Um, But, you know, Ceres was their sister, was part of their family. And that was her child. And they kind of just like, you know, had a private conversation was like, yeah, you can you can marry her. You can take her. That's fine. Um, And and then it was just this like aching, searching, yearning for her child, like lamenting and, you know, reaching across all corners of the earth and you know, there's parts of the story where she she refuses to even drink or eat anything because nothing, nothing's more important than finding her child. Um, and so I see in the chart it's like this, um, particularly if there's like difficult contacts with the malefics, right, there might be this residual fear that like, yeah, my stuff's going to get taken or like whenever I have something that I love or that is good it gets taken away from me um it's kind of like this resource scarcity versus resource security spectrum that we see with series
0: right and I can imagine that makes it difficult to like enjoy good things because there's that lingering fear of it going away
1: yeah 100 percent um like always kind of always looking to the future because of the past and never truly being present and just like enjoying the thing for what it is in the moment um and being comfortable with you know it going away and again that's like an attachment thing it's we have that with people we have that with objects um yeah just always always seems to come back to attachment with series
0: I've worked with like the three characters, Demeter, Persephone, and Hades, in this like variety of ways where there's like different interpretations. um, Or, you know, like, was she abducted or did she have destiny to belong to the underworld? And then also, I think about this kind of idyllic space of innocence with um, Demeter and Persephone and this like youth um, and nothing has happened to challenge that innocence yet and then her involvement or abduction or agreement whatever it is with hades completely changes her life but also removes her attachment from her mother to her you know underworld god <laughs> like husband and so one of the ways that i've tracked the series experience is um like series relating to this sometimes like either nurturing figure or like a smothering like overbearing mother and then the desire to escape the family and the enmeshment of the family by being with some kind of like bad boy like character Mm -hmm. to like take you away
1: Right. (laughs) I (laughs) love that yeah yeah I totally agree like especially the part about um having that sort of relationship with with your mother like if anyone's got Ceres like super prominently placed like you can pretty much guarantee they're going to have a very significant relationship to their maternal figure like whether that be positive or challenging um like Queen Victoria for example has Ceres conjunct the moon on her ascendant and her mother apparently like made her sleep in the same bed as her until she was like way too old to be doing that and was super strict and like you know forced her to behave in certain ways and stuff like that so like this archetypal smother mother you know um so yeah Sari's definitely i feel like it does tend to lead lean towards the overbearing mother archetype um kind of like I hate saying that because I do I feel like Ceres is a beautiful like archetype mythologically speaking but I feel like observing it astrologically it does tend to show up more as like erring on the side of overbearing do you, have you also found that
0: yeah and I'm, I'm curious like why it is like it almost feels like the line of like being a you know we just had Mother's Day yesterday And that's like Mm -hmm. a very emotional holiday for a lot of people. Like you see on social media, people posting about their mother and like in this kind of like celebratory way. And then you also have people posting about how this is a day of heartbreak for them, you know, or all these different stories of the mother come up. And it's, um, I think people's relationship with their mother symbolizes their relationship with like earth, with creation in a lot of ways, And there's so many different nuances or patterns that can show up. And so I think like the the line of like being a good mother is a difficult one. Like um, pretty much every parent fails in some way. Like even yeah. parents that yeah.
1: are, related. yeah. 100%, I agree. And like, when you think about um, the more like political side of things, mothers are some of the most oppressed people um in terms of like how they're treated especially if they're single um and so you know when we look at like the state of affairs in the world at the moment mothers for generations and generations have not been able to do their job properly to, to like mother their children properly um because they've not had the resources to do it they've not had the support to do it the community etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. and that directly ties to like the trauma that we inherit as children, because our mothers aren't able to mother us in the way that we we need. Um, and so I I would sort of, yeah, I would say that that's why I see it so much more often. It's like a difficult relationship with the mother rather than, you know, a positive or a neutral one. Um, it's like, it's a symptom of the the world
0: that makes a lot of sense it's having me think of like goddess worshiping cultures and like the descent from that in terms of Mm -hmm. um the advent of patriarchy and like all of these like lost like feminine like reverence practices or ways of living and that we're kind of we've been in the underworld of that as a culture for a while um
1: yeah for sure it's so interesting as well because like Ceres is obviously an agricultural goddess, and for me, she really like ties into the the Neolithic Revolution, which started around like ten thousand BCE, and it's essentially when we like shifted from hunter gatherers, nomads, etc. to being, um, you know, staying in the same place, cultivating the land, farming, um, etc. And you know, this is still what our society is built upon today. Um, it's the reason we're all able to gather in such large groups together. It's the reason that we were able to like survive as a species um, and her being linked to that also points to like the the more like gross outcomes of the agricultural revolution, like capitalism for example. Um, and so yeah, it's the two are like so interwoven like resources um and attachment and you know how we treat resources how we treat the earth etc is directly linked to how we treat um how we treat mothers and how we treat people who are expected to like raise children in this world it's yeah it's like the the rabbit hole with series <laughs> it's like um is is wild like when I was researching for the um, ebook that I wrote about her I was just like so many things connecting and um, I was really really blown away by it and also kind of heartbroken by it because it seems like such a pervasive ginormous like issue
0: right and I think it seems like it's just about our family our individual relationship but the deeper you go down the rabbit hole it's like this whole collective Mm -hmm. centuries deep issue yeah for sure what was the like beautiful side of series that you feel into like outside of these kind of like shadow or trauma based Mm -hmm. expressions of her
1: um just the like the fact that she is a mother you know like that is beautiful in and of itself um like the the care she has for her child and her her ferocity and um she just seems like very I don't know. I I admire something about mothers who have no fucking issue as coming across as this like scary archetype, you know, because they are like they have to be ferocious. Um, and that's what keeps kids alive, you know, is having a protective mothering figure tending over them. Um, and so I try to, I guess, stay as neutral as possible because. I know that, like, it's my conditioning that's making me view Ceres as, like, a, an overbearing archetype, Um, like, that's symptomatic, it's not inherently part of her nature,
0: you know? Hmm, I like that perspective. I feel like a lot of these myths need that kind of lens um, because yeah. of how thick the conditioning is.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and like you just have to think you know who who's writing these myths like what were their their labels what was their position in society um and like just understand like their voice and why they're saying these things in these certain ways and yeah I'm always a huge advocate for reimagining myths um and making them more helpful in like modern context
0: I also understand that like Demeter relates to the myth of the seasons like where we get winter and autumn from Um, like that things were kind of a perpetual springtime or summer energy until this trauma or this loss of her daughter and then she holds back the fertility of the earth um, and like winter is created um, and that the gods eventually negotiate with her because they need um her benevolence again for like crops and and everything
1: yeah yeah and that like that kind of takes it back to what I was saying earlier about like the power move it's like you know Zeus and Hades thought they thought they could um just take from her and, and nothing come of it and she's she was able to yeah withhold from the land and say like you don't you don't get these things if um, if you're going to take from me. And that, yeah, is such a power move. Um, and again, I think is worthy of, like, great respect on her part that she didn't just kind of go, like, oh, okay, you know. Like, she, it, it's reminding me of that film with um, Halle Berry where, like, her child gets abducted and the whole film is just her, like, chasing down this car that's, like... T- kidnapped her child and she's just unrelenting. Um, and it's so like raw and like powerful, like the energy that's radiating off her. Um and yeah, that that kind of definitely evokes like the series archetype for me.
0: It makes me think of our current um just like relationship with Earth, like the sustainability and how a lot of um modern cities aren't really that deeply in relationship with the earth like even if we have green technology or something it's not like when i go to when i've been in peru or indonesia and see like people consistently offering to the land and inside of those spaces there's like a deeper conversation um happening with the nature spirits and Mm -hmm. that level of communication i think it can happen in cities, but you maybe have to try harder to get through the city matrix to feel into that like communion. Um, It's not that the city is organized itself around that um, relationship. And it's like to a degree, you know, we're getting by, like we have like food in the stores and whatnot, but there's that kind of lingering sense of, is this sustainable? When is it gonna run out? And I just think of like the the psychological implications too of being that disconnected from the earth mother and then how that has run in family systems. And I think that exhaustion too or like that sense of not being resourced and the way that that then gets projected onto a mother figure for not being a good mom um, and not taking into account this whole like matrix that we're inside of.
1: Right. Yeah. Like the whole everything that's contributing to that. Um, you know, like I know for myself, I've in my chart, I've got um, Ceres at like zero degrees Aquarius square. My, oh, I have um, it
0: in Aquarius too.
1: Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. So it's like it, already that's like looking, it's a kind of difficult placement. And um, mine is square, my Scorpio Chiron. And I, you know, for a long time had like such anger towards my mother because she is not your typical mother archetype um and and it wasn't until I got older and started learning about the world and the way the world works and the way that power works in this world that I started realizing like oh she's literally just a victim of the same same system that I'm you know struggling to um free myself from in some kind of way and yeah it's really when you start looking into it in that way of like it's not this isolated incident of incidents of just like being a bad mum it's like why why weren't you able to be a good mum um and also like what is our what is our uh, definition of being a good mother like where's that coming from that's probably steeped in a bunch of um, unhelpful rhetoric as well and yeah it's just like diving deeper into series really really opened my view of like my own relationship to my mother and helped me find a lot of forgiveness
0: that's beautiful how do you see the attachment part with series Mm -hmm. so
1: with the attachment part I I see it as this kind of like um similar to what we were saying earlier about like that sensation of the thing you have is going to be taken from you so when you get something and you like it and it feels good makes you feel safe etc there's this fear like that's going to go away and um that shows up as like you know attachment wounding um, let's say you know you're you anxiously attached to people That anxious attachment is that residual fear of, like, this person's going to leave um, or I'm going to be rejected in some kind of way, abandoned, et cetera, et cetera. So it's this direct link to um, the attachment that was available to you in childhood. But and, and like just even more simply, just the resources that were available to you, because love is a resource, like attachment is a resource, attention, et cetera, like. It all feels very like second house um sort of realm, you know, and and how if we've experienced scarcity from a young age, like that wound is going to get carried over into our life and the way that we relate to everything around us and attach to everything around us.
0: Yeah, I like thinking about it in terms of the second house because there is this like, you know, if you have the developmental fortune of being in like a pretty healthy or like abundant family system, then it creates an ease later in life that when people have these um tumultuous um family dynamics early on, they are kind of tasked with dealing with that later in life. And so it, it's like a weight um, or like a thing to have to deal with. And there's like a lack of resource there to start out with. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think this is why as well, like, when we talk about things like attachment styles and stuff like that, I think it's really important to factor into the conversation, like, things like privilege and the resources that were available to you just because you were born into the family you were born into. Um, Like, we can't separate those things because the, the trauma of, like, just being in survival mode constantly is monumental it's like ever pervasive it finds its way into so many areas of your life including you know your relationships and the way you're attached to things and um and yeah it really it really is i don't know to me it's everything it's at the core of everything like what resources were available to you is going to dictate how safe you felt and have always felt in this world and it's going to dictate how you behave in this world um and so, yeah, I guess, like, it feels important to point that out when we're talking about this, and people are looking into this in their chart, or other people's charts, like, it's not just that someone magically has this, like, attachment style, you know, it's usually because of privilege plays some sort of part in it.
0: Right. Um, with series, I also think about the um, the descent into the underworld through grief essentially, mm-hmm. and, like, her cyclical phases of renewal outside, like, up and, like, back to the surface world, and, like, Ceres relating to our grief style and whatnot, like, having Pluto, or not Pluto, Ceres and Aquarius. Um, I've been thinking lately about, like, my relationship with freeze response, or, like, when my grief has been frozen and takes a much longer time than it maybe needs to, or before mm-hmm. I learned the tools, for alchemizing grief, like how long these seasons were and like the freeze state of that essentially. Um, And I think about series in terms of the impermanence of resources or impermanence of anything on this earth. And so how ultimately we will lose pretty much everything at some point. And there is like this idyllic state of these spring times where we're like really in, you know, and I, I know when I'm in that season of my life, like, it feels like being, you know, going from caterpillar to like metamorphosis stage to like full on like butterfly. And I'm just like having this like amazing time. And then something happens like time turns, events shifts, and I'm taken out of that idyllic paradise. And I like end up having to grieve that. And it's been, um, a process because I think some of my deepest grief in life has been about loss of those idyllic states and like how much I tried to like get them back but like couldn't exactly like I couldn't recreate them I had to find my way back into like the spontaneous emergence of those new seasons Um, but a lot of my different chapters in life like follow that cyclical story of like height and paradise and like fall from it and reascent and whatnot it's gotten to a yeah. place where I've had to be so much less attached to the particular story of how my life is amazing or how my life is terrible at any given moment because it's it's cyclical um, and it, to me it yeah. has become more about learning how to participate with the cycle and like how to move the energy and not get in and freeze with it
1: yeah I love that so much and that um, that imagery of like moving the cycle because I think when we're we're too attached right it's like we're digging our heels in we're like we want st- to I want to stay here now because this is good like I don't want anything to change and and it's like you become an obstacle for the way that things naturally want to flow and, and like the more resistance that you're providing like the more uncomfortable it's going to to be you know um rather than kind of like surrendering and and allowing the the current to take you into into your waves of like grief as those things naturally like come to an end but yeah definitely with series like tapping into cycles and seasons is is paramount um even just to like get comfier with losing things um getting comfy with grief and um you know, I find more and more, like, the more you focus on presence as opposed to, like, what happened in the past and what might happen in the future, you know, the easier it is to be okay with stuff. Like, presence to me is, like, this um, is very interlinked with, like, practicing non-attachment to things, you know. Like you
0: said, like, not
1: tying too much, like, I love this or this is terrible, Um, just
0: it is what it is kind of thing. Right. I think I saw a clip, um, well, it was a clip, but I think it was connected to an interview you did with Shahir about your Venus and Capricorn placement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what it was, but you were speaking of like how our capacity to grieve enhances our capacity for love and connection. Um, and I think you used an example of like there being some factors in the way of like seeing a partner because of work schedule or something like that and how if we're not able to grieve we might get into a place of blaming or projecting onto the partner our upset at the situation that's just shitty and is just like what we're having to deal with. Um, but if you yeah. can grieve you can actually stay open to um the connection in the face of those obstacles. Um, yeah. I really loved that perspective. I think I've just been learning so much about grief in the last few years like coming out of freeze and realizing that blame and shame are like, um, ways to avoid the grief process. Um, but yeah, it really resonated with me what you shared. And I'm just curious, like if there's anything more you would want to share about like the, the practice or art of grieving and like how you relate to it with your Venus and Capricorn or just like what you've learned about it, maybe with Ceres also.
1: Mm, Oh, I love that you brought this up because I'm so yeah so passionate about that side of things and about grief like I don't know it just feels like grief is you can't um, detangle it from love and yeah um, essentially the comfier we get with grief the more present we're able to be because we're not projecting onto the future we're not projecting like what if this thing goes away um, and for, I know for me personally, that shows up, absolutely shows up the most in my relationships. Um, you know, being very like wanting to like possess almost and grab on and not let go because I'm used to things leaving. I'm used to things going away. And working with my grief, or not even working with it is the wrong word, like sitting with my grief, becoming friends with my grief um, has absolutely you know expanded my capacity for like the fear that I feel around losing a partner or um or like even just being able to move through like difficult conversations with people and being able to say like hey I'm scared like you don't have to do anything about it but I'm just letting you know like I feel frightened right now um and for me like in terms of, like, practice-wise, I find, like, I journal every morning, I write all my fears down, everything out, I get a help, so it's not trapped in me, um, if it feels helpful, I voice my fears to people, again, in a way where it's not, like, I'm not asking you to fix this, or take this away from me, I'm just letting you know that this is what's existing for me right now, and then I also, like, thinking of, um, grief, or, like, moving grief as like a birthing ritual almost like I feel sometimes it's helpful to like create a container for yourself where you're literally birthing your grief um and whatever imagery that evokes for you like do that because it's going to look different for everyone but just having some kind of like contained space where you're like okay I'm sitting down and I'm letting stuff come up um obviously like movement's going to be a big part of that like I I know for me it's like lighting, music um, and movement and just like getting into this kind of more like animalistic state. Um, I'm always in these moments like very, very connected or like thinking of my ancestors and inviting them in as well to grieve with me, Um, particularly like my maternal lineage. I just quite frequently invite them in and welcome them to like, like, let's get this grief moving, you know, um, let's get it up and out and moving, because I know that there's so much, so many, many generations of pain that is so similar to mine, of all these women in my my lineage. So yeah, those are some of the ways that I approach my own grief and, and feel that it's helpful for other people too.
0: Mm, that sounds really powerful. I've had um, a process the last few years too, with grief around learning how to sound and move in ways that essentially just like authentic movement or embodiment or sounding which were not tools that I even really knew about before then and I think I had so much more of a like contained intellectual presence and mm-hmm. so to get into the animalistic um, was so freeing and I have experiences with my grief of there being like a dawn kind of feeling after like my vision gets brighter there's this like beauty this sense of renewal and I didn't used to know how to access that my grief would loop up in like a heady space and it would just be really miserable and I couldn't necessarily fully feel the thing that was wanting to be felt but I was stuck in the like the loop so I thought that that's what grief was and I'd try to like escape it by doing something else with my time and just like put it away and it just brought me to a place where I had the resources to unpack everything I compartmentalized and learn about these things so it was like a coping mechanism but I'm just kind of in awe of like even the the value the eros the like ways of grieving are something that I don't think culture in general is um yeah we're
1: so uncomfortable with it and like this this is more like white western um right I was just thinking it's not like
0: the whole world but it's it's, yeah We're Yeah. we're so
1: uncomfortable with death we're so uncomfortable with loss with grief like they're all tied in you know like how much we try and avoid thinking about death and thinking about things ending and going away like we were terrified and so of course that's going to impact our capacity to love and our capacity to be present and yeah it's just grief I just feel that grief is one of the most important um sensations to become friends with you don't even have to be comfortable with it like just be okay with it like like you said earlier the shaming and the blaming is just avoidance it's a way of avoiding and grief is grief is you like grief are just parts of you that are hurting like how how can you by rejecting those parts of yourself like you're just sort of re reinstating that wound um so important to yeah become come friends and just at least let them like come up once in a while and have their say
0: I wonder if the kind of overbearing part of series or that part that's like gripping is connected to her relationship with Pluto. And like, I see Pluto as, Pluto can resist death, but Pluto also is a force of death. And Ceres I think is trying to prevent those types of losses. And Pluto essentially kind of brings those, like when we're having a really strong Plutonic experience, it becomes so hard to fight that force of nature that's moving through us or our lives. Um, But we can like we can resist it, but there's a lot of turmoil and futility and whatnot inside of that. But I think, you know, what you were saying about our discomfort with death, like really um, had me consider this because if we had more like death literacy or like understanding of like how to relate to death in a ceremonial way and like how to really allow that to be a force of recycling and renewal and regeneration Um, I think maybe series would express differently but in the myth you know they're literally at odds too yeah wow I love what you said about Pluto is
1: you know like the bringer of death and Ceres is kind of like trying to prevent that um I'd never thought of it that way but you're so right you know she obviously didn't want her child to be taken and um wanted to exist in that kind of like eternal summer spring state um yeah wow and and I, I view as well like Pluto as that that kind of energy where like yes you can you can try and resist you can try and be like cunning and trick your ways out of it but I see it as like you can either like hold hands and walk down to the underworld with Hades or you can like try and avoid it and he'll rip you like from the earth and like you'll be taken down there kicking and screaming. Um, It's kind of like, again, what we were talking about with the like resistance to the way that things have always and are always going to cyclically flow. Um, You can either Go, go along with it or you can like be dragged along kicking and screaming and yeah Sari's definitely I feel Ceres encompasses the pain of that reality like the utter despair of like that 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 is how nature works and um and I, th- I feel as well I'm now thinking about what you were saying earlier about how especially in like cities you know we're so divorced from nature and you know, I go walking every day in this beautiful park that I live near, and there's it's just thick with nature and creatures, and, and you're I'm so up close and personal with the cycles of life and death, um, that it naturally transfers into my own life and, and my comfort with grief and my comfort with loss and endings. And so it makes a lot of sense that as you know the agricultural movement has pushed us more and more towards like city living as opposed to uh, living with and in nature then it's also divorced us from our our capacity to sit with death Um, and like the the ugly sides of nature the the difficult gruesome sides of nature that are always there but now we're kind of like shielded from
0: right they're kind of sanitized and like certain people deal with it and it's yeah out of sight um -hmm. I think it's interesting too, like the way that Ceres she's protecting something really precious. Like it is that like deep love or like that height of springtime. Like she's losing something that's like the most extreme um, preciousness. It's not like losing something that we were half-hearted or like eh about, like it's really mm. the place where yeah. we got attached. And, and attached it's innocence, to- like you said. Yeah. And that's like, when I relate to that type of heartbreak, <clears throat> it does have that, like, um, it's a pretty dramatic thing to lose or have end. Because when transitions mm-hmm. in my life happen from less extreme joy, you know, it's just, there's a peace, it's like, whatever, this is how things are changing. It's the things that I really don't want to end. Um, and that's now become a place like, Of art making for me like I stopped Mm -hmm. um orienting to I need to not have these things end or it's terrible if they end and relating to grief as like the breath out um the disappointment um after a height as like it's just part of the process it's a bigger game it's like maybe the Leo polarity to the Aquarius series of like you know Mm -hmm. if I'm gonna be living in any way that's kind of extravagant or wonderful like there's there's higher contrast like that's just part yeah. of it but to not not reject and try to like put away the other side of the process but to like actually just make art or get into those animalistic states from it um has been the the current remedy for me um and it's also what's allowed new seasons to happen. Like I was writing um, a novel about like a heartbreak that took me, I was like, didn't get over it for six years. So I was like, I'm going to write a book because I can't, like, I need to be free of this. And Mm -hmm. in the process of writing the book, I ended up um, having like the most enjoyable, like peak experience summer of my life, even (laughs) though I was like, you know, I was like directly alchemizing that grief Um, so it's just kind of changed my worldview really to like not reject that part of the process. Um, and I, you know, series like searching the earth for what she's lost. Like I could feel the different ways that I like enacted that search, but in ways that weren't working, um, versus like the type of, um, being on that mission of sorts or that kind of travel or that search in a different way um has -hmm. yielded more of the like return um return with that state of innocence or enjoyment
1: yeah because that's what it is it's like returning to innocence it's like returning home um because when we think about like you know Persephone being the personification of youth and innocence right the naivety the bliss of existing in the world and not knowing that bad things can happen and then being taken into the underworld to be initiated and and realizing like that that's not how the world works but it's so so important to be in relationship to innocence because it does still exist it's a very you know you could ultimately say it's like at the core of everything and it's just like conditioning and the world and the like reality itself that that adds in these more like hardened layers but at the core of everything is this very like um pure innocent outlook and and it does feel especially linked to creativity you know like a a creative idea has the same like youth and innocence as like a child you know um and it just it just wants to be made manifest It just wants to be born into the world and play and things like that and yeah it's so so important that we sit with our grief because that is the entryway to back to our innocence and the the greater capacity we have for our grief then the more the safer like those more youthful innocent parts of ourselves aka like our inner child whatever you want to call it the safer that child feels to come out because you're, you know, think about like growing up with an adult who who doesn't allow you to have your feelings, right? It doesn't allow you to cry. You you get told like you get punished when you express grief, right? If you're refusing to sit with your grief, then again, you're reenacting that wound onto yourself, and these innocent, creative parts of yourself don't feel safe with you. They don't feel safe to come out and play. And um yeah, I really, really love what you just shared there. And um, it's beautiful that in your your quest to like alchemize this grief, you you found like such joy. It's incredible.
0: Yeah, this connection that you're making around like our inner child and innocence in the grief process is so beautiful and like clicks in for me of just what that experience has been mm-hmm. and um. I never really formed that connection before of like the innocence because I think there's something so tender in admitting like how things have actually affected us as opposed to when we're in the guarded walled off projecting state like it's not it's hard to feel our innocence there
1: yeah yeah and as well like, I a feel called cool to speak about how how much easier it is to like reconnect with your innocence when you're not intellectualizing all your feelings right Um, and obviously this is why we're speaking about like incorporating movement and stuff like that into the grieving process, because it's not like, yes, it's amazingly helpful to like talk about it, write about it, but it's not the same as like moving it, um, or alchemizing it creatively, you know, it's, um, you've, you've got to be doing that stuff as well, because it wants, it wants to move, it's, it's alive in and of itself, Um, and and it needs that kind of interaction from you
0: right and I love like singing now with it like I'm not like a singer you know but it's not really something I do for others but it's something I do in my own space like even if I'm just making noises it doesn't have to be beautiful by any means Um, but that and movement and drawing or doing things that are just yeah it doesn't have to be like I mean my novel I was like I want this to be great you know I'm like trying to make something but a lot of it is just improvisational and it's just the Mm -hmm. the energy like wearing it on my body instead of having it stuck
1: that's such a good example of innocence you know like doing so like the singing thing that you just said like you don't you don't sing but you, you're doing it anyway that's like such a good example of innocence and I think so much of creativity needs innocence because you you like you can't learn a new craft by expecting to be really good at it straight away you know it, it requires like this messy sort of childlike approach and the, the more the more able you are to go into these things with like this, I don't give a shit if it's bad. I don't care if people laugh at me. Like it's, I'm just doing it because I want to do it. That's that's like what children do, right? They don't care Um, up until a certain age. They don't care what people think. They just do it. And that's like, that's innocence. It's like pre-conditioning, pre-fear that gets, you know, projected onto you, pre-like feeling like you could be humiliated, et cetera, et cetera. And so, again, meeting with your grief is allowing this innocent, creative child in you to feel safe enough to come out and 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 play. And when I say play, it's like, I feel like they should be taking the seat much more than we look. Um, they should be allowed, like, to be making decisions more than we let them and you know there's a lot to say there about how we don't let children have a lot of autonomy or make their own decisions or be individual people um, like yeah just so many things interwoven in about our conditioning and how we're raised and how we treat children and, and the impact that then that then has on our own innocence and our own ability to create without this excruciating fear of being like ridiculed for it
0: Right. It has me thinking of like the, um, defense as something that we feel really competent at or something like if we're really good at intellectualizing stuff, or if we have a talent and like to be able to rest in that at the expense of like investing in the parts of us that are really messy and like not all that developed and more in that place of like innocence. Um, and that that's a way of like feeling secure. And not going into
1: yeah. The- yeah. Yeah. I like that is something I definitely like I'm so attached to the things I'm good at.
0: Because <laughs> I don't love
1: like all the praise I've received, you know, for these things. And yeah, that's such a good um yeah. a good point to raise, like how attached we can get to the things we're good at and how that kind of keeps us away from exploring things that we're shit at, but that would otherwise we would really enjoy, you know. Right.
0: Eventually I just get I feel too cagey inside of like recognizing like oh I'm I may appear like I'm good at this but I'm using it way too much to like avoid being vulnerable in other places and I can feel that and I can feel how it's starting to get stilted and like not authentic anymore and like I need that regenerative like um, process of going into a place of discomfort and freeing up energy
1: right yeah you need to be like humbled
0: every now and then <laughs> yeah now Lating lately it's been pedestal. happening not as much by choice <laughs> like this right yeah. and what Saturn return yeah
1: again like if you if you don't do it willingly you'll you'll get dragged <laughs> off the
0: pedestal yeah exactly that's what I've been learning how to kind of tell like the closer I am to the pulse of how nature is moving through my life, I can participate with it. But as I start to get farther and farther away from it, because of my own attachments, the the loss periods are often more dramatic and ripping. Yeah. And I find that there's some signals, you know, like I don't know how much this would connect to like agriculture in the sense of being able to tell like subtleties of how the season will go. But I think there's those kind of like, heartbreaking moments in the summertime and relationship um, summertime phase where you can start to see the seeds that something is about to shift and like you can try to like do something about it or have conversations but there's like a pulse or a direction moving a certain way Um, and there could be ways to like go along with that but I find those spaces can be you know, conversations are not had about it and it starts to just decay without like ceremony. I think, you know, if we think about breakups or something too, how often um, it's hard to do a breakup with love and connection and like mutuality that there's can be a sense of one person feeling really um, like the rug has been pulled out from underneath them um, or it's like not like a collaborative decision. Um, On the other hand, too, like I've seen like watching couples break up who have so much love or they have a family, they have kids, and you can see like all of this energy being freed up and they're like on the ride of that change that's happening in their life. And it's heartbreaking and life opening at the same time. And um yeah, this it's just another romantic notion for me now at this point too, in terms of becoming better allies or friends with my grief to like think about how to relate to endings and death processes in a in a more romantic connected way.
1: Yeah, and that makes me think of like how difficult it can be to m- like move through those moments with like grace. You know, it's it's a very vulnerable position to put yourself in like especially let's say you're the one um being severed by another person you know how vulnerable to say like wow like this is so sad I'm like so sad about this I feel like it's a lot easier to be like okay yeah like do what you've got to do it's not affecting me whatever um but it's so important like the the second um example you gave of like, yes, it's sad, but it's opening up so much potential for both parties involved, you know? I feel like we can move more into that territory of like separation and relationships if we're being like vulnerable and forthcoming with with the grief that comes up when things come to an end. Um, and I also think as well, like this reminds me of my own recent experience with like a relationship ending, because I'd been very present with the grief during the relationship right so when these these moments these pulses that you were talking about of like the oh something's changing here and this isn't quite what I thought it was I was grieving those moments as they were happening and so by the time it came so when it came to the like the relationship ending a lot of my grief had already been felt and so I was kind of already in the swing of it and it wasn't this huge like um, confronting like wall of grief. So yeah,
0: again, sit with (laughs) your (laughs) grief. Yeah, I'm more and more like inside of working with grief. I don't think it is as um, like terrible as I thought it was before I was willing to face it. Like it's actually really beautiful and it's deeply in my like research with Eros, like Saturn and Eros always felt connected like there's something naturally erotic about grief and the capacity to feel grief um, and what happens after we feel it so there may be some I'm wondering yeah ways to talk about it because it seems like it's so you know bringing Saturn in the room of like grief it's like this heavy thing but it's actually like so um, part of the cycles of nature and like turns things and like creates fertility and um i think ceres could be a representation of that in her like fertility principle and like fertility includes dead composted things like
1: yeah yeah like she's inherently concerned with both death and rebirth similar to pluto um you know it's it's not just the like the loss it's also the reemergence of the the innocence um and like when we look at ceres you know with Persephone being her child, like that is just it's Ceres's story almost. It's like the innocent part of Ceres being whisked off, taken away um to the underworld to go through this initiation. And and it's almost like the um the kicking and screaming that we do when that happens to us. Um, and that's the process of Ceres, you know, like trying searching through, trying to get back to her innocence, but I guess ultimately. The only way we can like return home to our innocence is by accepting the grief and the um the the like power that gets taken from us you know like grieving that there are bigger and more powerful things in this world than us and we don't control everything that happens to us and so we have to practice this level of non-attachment because we have to be in this kind of like open state of like this could get taken from me um, because there are greater things than me that that have that power over me.
0: It's interesting, like evolutionary astrology is so, um, it's based in Pluto and like a lot of the um, baseline understandings of the chart have to do with what we desire the most and the kind of shadow tendencies we've developed to keep those things at all costs for Pluto Mm -hmm. which is actually pretty similar to Ceres and finding out that they're around the same size and both like dwarf planets essentially is having Mm -hmm. me think about like a whole new way of looking at natal charts by thinking about Ceres and Pluto together because a lot of I think what we're talking about with Ceres I've put on Pluto and like looked at through Pluto so I'm gonna have to think about this
1: yeah, it would be interesting. I know, like in my in in charts that I've read that have you know that Ceres has popped out at me, Pluto always does seem to be doing something pretty significant, and I I find um Ceres and Pluto in a chart can point to like divorce, divorced parents, and things like this, like the power struggle um between the two parental figures um over you know what's going to happen to to the child, and then how, you know, how unsafe, I guess, that can leave the child feeling of like what's going to happen, What like watching two worlds collide almost. It's quite like mind bending and difficult for a child to to understand what's going on there. But yeah, Ceres and Pluto definitely is worth like doing more research and study into like how interwoven they are.
0: Um, before we close, is there anything that you want to include about like the series asteroid or significations anything that we haven't really covered
1: um yeah I guess it might be helpful to talk a little bit about um the discovery chart of Ceres and mostly that she's got um so she's a Leo rising and she's got sun in Capricorn and then Saturn on the ascendant so she's got ruler of the first in the sixth and then ruler of the sixth on the ascendant and I think this speaks greatly to um how how identified she is with and we haven't spoken about this side of things as much with like labor and um, work like the um the unseen labors of a mother right and and how 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 overlooked that can be in this world, and with like Saturn on the on the ascendant in Leo nonetheless, like Leo obviously wants to explore and express themselves um but Saturn being on there is almost like but you've got work to do and I see this as kind of this story of like what it is like being in survival mode um to take it back to that resource scarcity we were talking about earlier, like when all you've known is survival mode when all you've known is scarcity that leaves very little room for like getting to know yourself exploring yourself and having the privilege of expressing that part of you that innocent part of yourself you know um so it's really yeah really interesting to me to see how like vividly that shows up in Sarah's discovery chart um yeah I don't know if you're someone who looks at discovery charts at all or
0: I don't tend to but I feel like I would glean a lot from it like even just like Saturn and Leo on the ascendant there's something around that like hardship early in life like Leo like inner child kind of thing but a lot of what we've been talking about too is like this capacity to um play and like to uncover some of the um crunchy like walls and barriers that happen that keep us from being connected to our inner child um and that as a read of Saturn and Leo Mm -hmm. um yeah and then yeah the kind of like being pulled under by work and labor like not being able to get above water like above ground because of being in survival mode um yeah and that that adds a lot
1: yeah, like, just not even being able to, um, yeah, like, connect to that playful, expressive side um, or, like, energy that we're meant to have access to with Leo, um, yeah, with Ceres, like, we see sometimes, like, or almost always is the case if you're in survival mode, like, you don't have access to that. It reminds me of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with maslow's hierarchy of needs
0: Definitely, and yeah.
1: how you know at the bottom is our physiological needs and at the top is self-actualization and creativity and stuff like that like all of leo's realm is at the top of the pyramid and then all of like Ceres's realm is at the bottom like having your basic needs food water care um that's oh. all Ceres domain and oh. so yeah there's just such a strong link of like if you don't if you don't have good stuff going on at the bottom with your physiological needs then the last thing you're thinking about is like being creative or being playful or you know being spiritual etc like those things are unfortunately privileges in in this world um and yeah definitely shows up with with series
0: yeah the Saturn and Leo and like the top of the hierarchy of needs pyramid it's like the process that people go through to um, exit survival mode feels Mm -hmm. like a kind of, it's like a remothering um, process or like a way of like affirming at a root level that we feel safe and taking actions, having strategies to start to make those moves, but doing the like energetic kind of rewiring around it. Um, And to see that as like the, like Saturn being like work that is difficult or like work that takes time and it's that like top layer of the hierarchy of needs um it's just super interesting to configure that with the discovery chart
1: yeah yeah she's got a really really interesting chart I um recommend taking a look
0: so you have an ebook about this. We can link mm-hmm. that in the notes. Um, do you want to share anything about it as well as how people can find you and work with you?
1: Yeah, so the, yeah, the ebook is just like super easy to access. Um, it's $11. And yeah, there's just a bunch of information in there. I go through like the astronomy, the mythology, the discovery, and and then the astrology. And I sort of continuously link it back to like what that tells us about this archetype um and then yeah you can find me I'm on Instagram and Twitter um Stella sanctum and I am soon to be opening up uh, like an offering suite that is more um artistic in nature so it's it's like an digital astrology shop where instead of buying like, art prints and things like that you're buying like different readings and like ebooks and class replays and stuff like that so that's coming at sort of like the start of June um it's coming soon so yeah keep an eye out for that
0: awesome well definitely follow Elle I've been loving your posts and you were posting a lot recently because of the um garbage post challenge and it was it was really illuminating like to get to know more of your thoughts and um yeah you're very like fascinating and magical to me (laughs) um i really am glad that we had you on the show and i learned um so much like i made a lot of new connections and i didn't really plan for this to be close to mother's day but it was interesting how that was like a huge part of the collective consciousness yesterday leading into this conversation um thank you so much for bringing your like research and knowledge about series to the podcast thanks for having me I had a series-like experience the other day Um, in the context, I'll share this post that I shared to Instagram, but it was about feeling uninterested and really wanting to feel interested and engaged and that sense of being in this response of like, why am I, I'm in the underworld of like, I don't want to focus on anything, I don't want to do anything and I went into a journey with it, so here's the story titled afternoon and tourist season i'd grown concerned about this part of me that is a hundred percent uninterested and doesn't want to do anything after circling her for a little while trying to find what it means or solutions i laid down and said bored one uninterested one depressed one show yourself i began asking her questions like why are you uninterested What do you need? Somewhat surprisingly, I was dropped into an immediate trance and began dreaming. There was a ton of energy inside of the uninterested one. I'd thought as much. Before I entered the meditation, I thought about it being Taurus season and how feeling slothful and absolutely uninterested is the other side of the spectrum of feeling juicy, being moved at the beauty of flowers, being turned on in every way. A Torian ideal feeling delicious that is a mystery practice in the way we have to learn how to receive it. You can go through the motions and have a decadent picnic at sunset, but can you feel it deeply? I asked her, what will it take for you to be interested? Distinctly, I was shown that nothing external will come along to remedy that. It was an internal opening that had to be chosen. Then she showed me the grief that was underneath the veneer of uninterested, and we cried. I shook it out, sung and sounded, and cried more. I'd been sick for a week and felt some of that stagnation move also. Like a normal cold, I've been waiting to just get better, but a week is a long time for a cold. It was magical to feel the energetic side of the cold move. Knowing the energetics of Taurus, fixed earth, and the fixed modality of the Zodiac in general, inspired me today to get to know my uninterested one, not just at face value, but what's really underneath. Fixed energy is stubborn and packed with energy that can be freed up and rerouted. I'm not uninterested at heart, but it was a clever way to not have to feel something else, the grief. When I open inside of it, it cracks my heart open, my vision changes even. When I was in this funk you know mercury was stationing direct and taurus too i feel like that had something to do with it just this kind of like mercury in an earth sign and like not moving very fast and mercury relating to like curiosity in the mind and this kind of stagnation maybe that was showing up i felt scared to not be interested to be bored like i felt like that fear of like what if i stay this way forever like what's gonna how's it going to change you know and so that's why I did this embodiment vision quest with myself about that and then last night I was having this distinct experience of feeling so happy that I felt like curious and engaged and that like I felt delight in my consciousness and I connect this to series and the you know, these experiences of connecting to a high state or a summertime, going into the underworld and feeling like the grief is never going to end, and then the emergence and the renewal and the return of innocence in that way. And I know for me, um, I went, I feel like I could go years, like I had years go by of never feeling uninterested, like always being engaged and curious and like mentally like lit up. And so that feeling of like, wait, what's going on in my depressed was like kind of scary. Um, and there was also like a really potent medicine and magic inside of it. And it's given me just like a greater appreciation for my curiosity and for my interested, my interested one. Um... But yeah, I'm going to leave it here. Do check out the link for ecstasies and feel into if you are feeling the call to be guided into a ritual experience to open to peak experience. This frequency as Carla and I are birthing it and feeling it move through us has already initiated so many layers of up leveling and healing and it just has that quality to it of like that rising electric energy up your spine or feeling like your body starting to just take in more life and what it feels like to really ride that wave of energy, right? Like embodiment and a lot of what, you know, let me back up here. A lot of what I work with with astrology is like about embodying our natal chart, like being in connection with the cosmos and living out that promise, right? And then embodiment has been this additional frontier of like first my soul you know is like okay I'm down to be in this incarnation and like with this set of opportunities in this time and culture let's go and then jumping into the body is like where it's at (laughs) that's what I've been working with the last few years Carla has been a huge part of that and these codes of embodiment have allowed me to take in more life from my form, right? And to be a channel for more, to be able to hold and be able to conduct more. That is the grand adventure of embodiment. And this particular invitation is about joy and becoming the party. And this, I feel we each have our own journey with, It is a medicine, however it's meant to work through us. So I can just share from my experience in this part here that um, the party is often an image or an experience that I've externalized onto other people or to special situations. And the ceremony of opening up to where I am that sun, right? Like my internal sun, my capacity to radiate joy outward, um, that medicine is really special to me right now and has been part of my ongoing path, like very highlighted recently, something that Carla and I also share um, a, a definite spot for. Um, so we're going to be brewing up this mood and this atmosphere of revelry right in, in our group with each other and also birthing that through ourselves it's going to be so much fun, it is going to be decadent, we have a beautiful villa in Crete, we have a Greek chef who is amazing, I love her, and we're gonna have a fucking blast. So do check out that link, ecstasies, in the notes for the page and application, and also feel free to send me an email, sabrina at monarchastrology.com. I love you, have a gorgeous day.